Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com. It's also in iTunes, and you can subscribe that way or using an RSS reader, and those links are at thejazzsession.com. As you know, I'm in the midst of a membership campaign with the goal of getting 100 members by the 300th show. The 300th show will be the final show of August, and possibly the final show of all time, unless you become a member, which is very easy to do. Just go to thejazzsession.com slash join. And once there, you'll find a little drop-down menu, and you can choose the level at which you'd like to become a member, starting out as inexpensively as 10 bucks a month, or you can do it in a yearly sum of $110. And then there are levels above that. At the highest level, $50 a month or $500 a year, you'll be mentioned on every show as an official sponsor. So it's a great way to support the show and to get your name out there if you're interested in doing that. Most importantly, though, it's the only way to keep the kind of interviews coming that have been coming to you for free for the last four years, and the show will continue to be free for as long as it continues to exist. My idea, my goal with this thing was to be able to put these musicians in front of as many sets of ears as possible, and so you having free access to that is very, very important to me, and I don't intend to change that. But... That also means that the show doesn't generate any income because it doesn't cost you anything to hear it. So therefore, I need some people to join and become members and help keep this show going because it's just uh, it's a financial burden to do it and to host it and to pay for all the bandwidth with all the downloads and all that stuff. And I really could use your help to keep the show going. The most recent member is uh, Bob Sharkey, actually a, a very fine poet and a friend of mine from uh, the Albany, New York area. And I thank Bob for becoming a member, and I hope that you will, too, at thejazzsession.com. Today is the start of a series that's going to run for the next several weeks called Cookers Mondays. Every Monday on the show for the next several weeks, I'll be talking to a member of the band The Cookers, starting today with Billy Harper. And each Monday, I'll also be giving away a copy of their new CD signed by all the members of the band. And if you would like to get that CD this week... Simply send an email to contest at thejazzsession.com. That's contest at thejazzsession.com with cookers in the subject line, and the first person will win the CD. And you'll have several more chances to win a copy of the Cookers' new record signed by all the members of the band. As I mentioned, my guest today is Billy Harper, and you'll hear him here along with the rest of the members of the Cookers on a track from their most recent record.
My guest is composer and saxophonist Billy Harper. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Jason. Uh, I want to start with something that happened recently, which is uh, Cast the First Stone, the the second record by the uh, Cookers Band. And uh, David Weiss has been on this show after the first record came out. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the evolution of the band and its? Uh, does it have more of a collective identity now as a band since that first record? Would you say? I think so. I, you know, it's a, a band that kind of uh, developed from uh, the idea of the Cookers, uh, the the record that was done with Lee Morgan and Freddie Hubbard. Right. You know, you know about that. And as we went along, uh, we realized that uh, you know there was such strong members in the group, and and I like playing with my group because that's strong members too. And right. uh, but we get a, another kind of strong <laughs> happening <laughs> with the Cookers too. You know, uh, and. Uh, uh, it's easy for people to uh, to want to hear more, so that's what started happening, and we started working more, and uh, and kept doing it. And so the, now the cookers are, are doing extra things. Talk about you differentiated the two kinds of strong in, in your yeah. band in this band. Can you talk a little bit about that? What you mean? Well, by that? you know, uh, a lot of my uh, uh, strength, I suppose, is in uh, hard drive and sometimes uh, uh, whaling hits and. Thunder. Okay, but that kind of thing happens with the cookers too. It's just that mine is with my group is uh, uh, constructed in a particular way because we can do a smooth, very much um, uh, song uh, that I've written that's supposed to be softer with heart, softer with a harder tinge, and it's a special thing that happens with my group. It's still, you know, it's a, it's, it could be a ballad, but one of my things, and it still sounds like we played something hard, but it's a ballad, <laughs> you know. Is that a factor of you having more explicit control over the direction the band moves in in uh, your yeah. own group? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because uh, they know exactly how I'm thinking about this music and how it's supposed to be. And in the Cookers, the difference is that uh, every every individual is so strong that they, they might have their own individual idea about how to do it. You know, so it's, it's a little bit more designed with my group. Uh, a little more understood about because of the direction I want to go in with the cookers, it may sometimes be in the direction of the bass or sometimes in the direction of the piano or drums. Sure. You know, yeah. The cookers seems to have avoided uh, what is often the fate of many all-star, you know, in quotes, groups, which is that, yes, it's wonderful to get all these guys on stage together, but maybe there's a reason they don't always play together because it doesn't work. With the cookers, it seems like you've all been able to both bring your distinct personalities, but also uh, sublimate them at least to some degree to mm-hmm. the to the the betterment of the group. Yeah, I think uh, that's true, and and I think it's so because we played with each other at different times. You know, uh, everybody in there has played with the other fellow somewhere, sometime. Sure. You know, and so when you put them all together, it works. You know, one thing we should have done right at the top. Will you mention who's in the the band, the Cookers, at the moment? Uh, the Cookers, yes. Yeah. Oh, I thought, okay. Well, we have uh, David Weiss on trumpet and Eddie Henderson, who played with me for eight years. <laughs> Billy Hart, who played with me when I first got to New York. Billy Hart on drums. I should have said uh, uh, David's on trumpet, uh, Eddie's on, on trumpet, and Billy Hart's on uh, drums. Uh, Cecil McBee, we didn't get a chance to, to play together before before the Cookers, but every once in a while, a single gig or something like that. Uh, George Cables, he was on my first album. Uh, McBee again is on bass and George Cable's on piano. And so George and I played together the first time I got to New York. And he's on, you know, a few other things with me. Uh, David yeah, Trumpet, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Craig uh, Handy, Handy, and sometimes uh, Benny Maupin. 
uh, Craig is a little newer in the group, a little uh, younger than the other guys, <laughs> but uh, he knows how to fit in and and everything works fine. And Benny Maupin, you know, we played together also when I was <laughs> when I first got to New York, and we and you know we kind of know exactly what to do. Yeah. So it fits well. That's great. Yeah. It must be nice to have those, uh, you know, at this at this point in your career, you, you have some musicians with whom you've had uh, effectively lifelong, I mean, decades and decades long relationships. It must be it must be really rewarding to s- yeah, still yeah. have those. Yeah, that's good. It, it's really good um, because uh, even if somebody else has, has gone and played with, uh, perhaps they're busy playing with a different group for years, uh, eight years even, we always remember exactly how it's supposed to feel when we, we play together. <laughs> it's amazing, yeah. Social networking is a big thing that I do for this show. And when I mentioned that I was coming to interview you uh, on Twitter, the first person who responded said, what an amazing composer and horn player. And I thought it was interesting that he put composer first because uh, I really do think your your writing's incredibly strong. And I wonder if, if writing has always been central to who you are as a musician or did that develop over time? Well, I'm, no, it was always uh, part of my thing. But playing is is so strong in me and and uh, I see that as the main thing because also when I'm playing I'm writing I mean I'm uh, I may write a little faster when I'm playing <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking and feeling a line that that can possibly be uh, uh, melodic or can be harmonic or can be just very fast but it's still in my head it's sort of like Max Roach's thought I believe you know, it's still a, a colored line, like, like painting, and it, and it uh, represents a statement. So it's like a composition. And somewhere in there, I probably will play something that sounds like a composition. Yeah. And uh, how, how much then does that mean your spontaneous compositions, the improvisation, how much uh, – within kind of what parameters does that operate? So, for example, uh, do you try to remain somewhat tied to the melodic structure of the tune on which you're improvising? No, I, I kind of think more in terms of uh, of drawing a line, uh, just subconsciously drawing a, a line, uh, like uh, not a straight line, but uh, some direction of a line 
like a painting, and it may go um, northeast, west, or anywhere, uh, as long as it's smooth and and it's exactly what I'm trying to do in feeling. Mm. So it's it's, and it might come out being a melody, more melodic, but it might come out being more harmonic. Sure. <laughs> and then sometimes it's very rhythmic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is what I like. Rhythm is one of the main things I like. Yeah. Is that the thing about this? music that makes it attractive to you that uh that unknowing that uncertainty yeah i think so you know there's so much space for improvisation and uh freedom of speech i suppose uh freedom to say what you want to say uh and i have a i i talk a lot on the horn i don't talk a lot <laughs> in person <laughs> but i talk a lot on the horn i guess i have a lot to say yeah. do you uh have you used your music over the years uh, for other kinds of expression than just musical, for commentary on, on social issues or uh, things that struck you? Uh, I've, the I felt uh, 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 some need to express some social, political uh, views in the music, you know. But uh, I think it, it still comes out feeling like, uh, okay, and it should, that, that I just wanted to express this piece of music. Within the piece of music, you may feel something that sounds uh, kind of uh, 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 like a social statement or a political statement. Uh, one way to make it clear is to, uh, I can name the tune, something that relates to it. One time I, uh, I had a tune called, I still have a tune, called <laughs> Somalia. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I was focused on Somalia during that time. And, and I don't think, I don't know if the music sounds like that, but it, it, uh, it does express some of my feeling. You know. Was there any kind of uh, programmatic underpinnings for the, the titling of Black Saint? No, I think uh, in that case, uh, the record company was named Black Saint, and I was the first one on the record. Right. Being the first, I think they thought of the idea, maybe, why don't we call it Black Saint? And then, I, I, I don't mind the name so much, but... It makes people think that I'm really a saint. I'm not, I'm not really a saint. <laughs> it wasn't eponymously titled. Enough, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not bad, but, you know, I'm not a saint. <laughs> uh, I'd like to just talk a little bit, uh, for people who may not know your history, um, just about that history. Uh, you, you came out of Houston, as did many uh, wonderful players, and uh, I wanted to talk just about that that transition from being there uh, to coming to New York and, and what that was like for you to make that move? Well, I was uh, born in, in Houston. I call it Houston now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I also was in Dallas. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and that's where, well, first of all, I was surrounded by all these fantastic saxophonists. I didn't even know, know who they were. I, you know, I was little, you know, and, and as I grew up, I, I discovered, yeah, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, he's done that. Oh, he's, wow, that's who that is. Uh, I discovered later about uh, Arnett Cobb and, and his dealings, but I never knew that uh, Illinois Jacket was from, from uh, Texas. I thought he was from Illinois. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and I used to hear him there, too, with Eddie, Hink, uh, Eddie Cleanhead Vincent. He was mm -hmm. there. I just thought, I didn't think very much, you know, okay, because I heard other sa saxophonists who people didn't know who were really fantastic. Right. <laughs> you know, so that's the way it was. Uh, Don Wilkerson. Well, they knew about him because he played with uh, 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 Ray Charles. Actually, oh, okay. he was the main saxophonist before, I think, before, before Fatty. Fatty Demon. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Don was like a whirlwind. I think they, 
the the tornado. He was just <laughs> just something else, something else really <laughs> on the horn. He he, you know, everybody was afraid of him uh, going to the jam sessions. You, most people, most saxophonists would not get up there with him. If you had never to do that, okay, <laughs> you know. <what> I mean? <laughs> oh, he was a whirlwind, and and uh, and so. I was around all these cats in, in, in Houston. And then I also, by the time of college, went to North Texas State and, right. and in Dallas. I played with uh, James Clay. And he was fantastic, you know. Uh, I was just very lucky. Well, did, I didn't know anything about Did North that. Texas State have, a, have as famous or reputed a jazz program as it, as it has now? It's obviously sure. very well known. Oh, so yeah, even then before was... I ever got there. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were winning, winning first place all the time in every contest they were in. And I, I ended up getting into that band too. I was the first uh, black to get in there. You know, it took it took a lot of doing. Also, during that time, they they still had their the southern stuff going on. Yeah. What what but, kind of doing did it take to get in? I, I think that uh, you know I myself uh, was known. I guess I had a sort of I, I gathered a reputation as a. Uh, a mean practicer. I mean, I was the the one who practiced most around uh, most around that time, and uh, and and I was ready, ready to be in that band. Uh, uh, the 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 fellow who was over it knew that, you know. Uh, he hesitated a bit, and I think that pretty soon the pressure from the other musicians there said, "Hey, you got to get him in this band because you know that's probably how it happened." And uh, so I was ready to get in the band. I got in the band, and we won first place also in Kansas or something. And you know. did that make uh, did that lead to any complications when the band performs? That it was now an integrated band? No, not no. at all. I mean, no. <laughs> you know, it was just a figment of the uh, the upper echelon's imaginations, I suppose. Mm. Because it was during that time, you know, they had their Confederate uh, fraternity down there. I mean, they would march on horses and with the flags. It was just, it was definitely, uh, it was Martin Luther King time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Malcolm X. Just a couple of weeks ago, they flew Confederate flags over to two of the uh, uh, county courthouses again in celebration of, of Confederate Heritage Month. So Okay. It's, yeah, it's, so it's 2011, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 2011, and we're yep. still in the same place. Okay. Yeah.
so I'll put off the New York talk for a minute to say, um, obviously, at some point for you, there was there was something that made playing the saxophone seem like more than just something fun to do and like something that you were going to pour yourself oh, yeah. into. Can you remember? Was it sure. a moment or was it an accumulation of moments? <laughs> I remember the moment. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I was uh, singing before I could crawl, uh, while crawling, before I could walk. And uh, I, I thought that, you know, I got... I got interested in this horn around 11 because I, after coming from school, I'd, I'd watch the, in front of the instrument shop, I'd, you know, I'd just watch all the, all those horns, and there was one with three notes, one, two, three, that's not enough, I said. What is that, the one with all those other notes? And I couldn't figure out how I could possibly play all those notes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that other one had just one, two, three. <laughs> that was anybody it. could do that. Right? Yeah, anybody <laughs> could do that. So I wanted the other one, you know, with uh, all those notes, you know, that long horn with all the notes. And uh, uh, I just look. I'd be looking at that that horn each uh, each day after the after the school closed, and and uh, the fellow called me in once and, and showed me what was happening with it and how how you know how to kind of deal with it. And I was more interested. So at that time, I wanted for Christmas. I was always asking. I gotta have a horse, and I gotta have a, a saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what I wanted for Christmas, a horse and a tennis saxophone. <laughs> okay. So I got the horn. <laughs> they said, you, you, can't put a, you can't, we can't put a horse in the house. I mean, you can't, you, you can't have a horse. Think about it. You know, <laughs> I just wanted a horse, but okay. So I got the saxophone, and I got uh, a lot interested in, in, in playing, and I was acting and singing, playing, acting, and singing. So at the time, at that time, I had very good ears. I could hear a lot of stuff, and and I could hear without. I just could play whatever I heard. So I thought, oh, yeah. And my uncle started me on jazz right away as soon as I got the horn. So I was playing um, uh, things from singers, and and he was singing and trying to scat a little bit. You know, I was learning easily from from what he was trying to do and what he played to me on the on the records. He played. All good stuff, you know, right. Kenny Dorham, <laughs> yeah, Kenny Dorham and uh, Sonny Rollins, Max Roach, and all those people. <clears throat> so I thought, okay, by the time I was going to college, I got it, I got it, I can do, I can do whatever, you know, because I could hear so well and I could play everything else. I was working uh, at sixteen, making money, and I thought, yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to go here, but I'll go. <laughs> So I got to school, North Texas State University. It's called University of North Texas now. I got there, and, and David went there, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, after I had gone, had left. And also Craig. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So I got there, and I, I was trying to practice a little bit, and, and I heard this lady in another room playing piano, some classical piano, and she was playing all kinds of stuff. I said, what? What? This is the moment. That, this is that moment. I said, I talked to her, and I said, what are you doing? What how do you do that? What you know? <laughs> what's wrong with you? <laughs> oh, she was playing some fantastic stuff. It was difficult, man. I never, I never thought that I would even want to play that. But uh, yes, I would want to play that because I want to master this horn. And at that moment, I realized, wow, I have to really practice. And that's when I, that's when everything uh, changed. I, did, I stopped singing, stopped acting, and nothing but that horn. And I want to master the horn because I hadn't even thought about that. Wow. <laughs> I just, I was just. Thinking I would play it, yeah. <laughs> you know, but mastering it and playing it is a whole different thing. <laughs>
you talked about becoming a, a, a mean practicer. What did that mean specifically for you? What were you wor- working on during well, those hours yeah, of practicing? Yeah, that during that time of, of deciding to really practice, really practice, I, I had realized how far I was behind. I mean, I, it didn't seem like that because I could play what people play and people hear on the radio or whatever, uh, even if it's jazz. But that's that, that was not that was not mastering the horn. Uh, I, I actually stopped uh, studying for one semester and just practiced, period. Eight hours a day, you know, just morning to night. And I, uh, I didn't uh, bother to uh, go to a lot of the events, you know, the celebrations and dances and all that stuff. I was just practicing, and, and everybody knew I was just a mean practicer, that kind of thing. And, and, and uh, after I left there, there were... Uh, Legends, uh, stories of the legends of Billy Harper practicing. <laughs> <laughs> they made up stuff I, I never heard before. I never did. <laughs> they said I went on the top of the administration building and practiced. I was practicing everything. I was practicing so hard. Everybody would come around and listen. And that's, 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 that's a good amazing. story. <laughs> yeah. I never did that. <laughs> Were you on a horse? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 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 I guess the thing that's interesting to me about that is that uh, you – you kind of went completely on your own from a, an undisciplined but naturally gifted musician to this kind of monastic devotion to your hmm. to your horn. Hmm. How were you able to judge your own progress? I guess what what were you guiding well, yourself toward? I, I could see that uh, I was thinking. Well, even before I got to college, I had a, a jazz group and we played a lot of Blakey's things. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to make sure that I was on the caliber of. Uh, of being to play, being able to play with anybody, uh, Max or Blakey, or uh, and, and when I came to New York, by the way, I played with both. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, so I knew that uh, okay, I might feel this, and I might, but I'm not there. I just made sure that I had to be past there, and 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 I got to that point. When I came to New York, playing was nothing. I mean, easy, in other words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah because, and that was something you could. You could feel something you oh, yeah. could hear when you listened back. How, how did you how no, did could, you judge that? I could feel that because I had played so many difficult things, just like that lady I, I met. I had played so many difficult things and so many difficult keys. I was so confident and felt so good. I knew I can do whatever I wanted to do then. Yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of getting past the horn as a as an object and just in making it just another extension of your body. Right. It's the old cliche. Precisely. Right. Yeah. So when I got to New York, uh, and I, I was playing with James Clay in Dallas. You know that. That was already already a big thing, yeah. You know, uh, so when I got to uh, to uh, to New York, I I was uh, just ready. I, I one time I left school at nineteen, I was gonna leave school and and play, and I was ready then. But uh, you know, the family wa- wanted me. I had definitely had to finish school, so I came back. Right. I, I didn't know what else I could learn. But then when I came back, I did learn something about writing for big band. And then I was playing in Dallas after graduating, and pretty soon. You know, they give you a card, gas card, when you graduate. I don't know if they do that now. But uh, I had a car, and they gave me a card to to uh, put some gas in the car, and you could keep using it. And I realized that it was expiring in three days. And I left because it takes about three days to get to New York. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I left Dallas. Wow. <laughs> and it was snowing in Dallas, snowing almost all the way up here. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's funny. So, so now what year was that that you came to New York? 66. Okay. Yeah. And what did you do first? Oh, man. <laughs> it was. I have so many 
stories. I don't know. We don't have time to hear them all. But the first night I came, I checked into the hotel, I think somewhere in Times Square. President Hotel, maybe. President Hotel. Okay. Uh, you know, and I didn't have any money. I, I borrowed $100 from a friend before before I came because uh, I might need something, <laughs> I right. guess. You know, food. Or yeah, something <laughs> like that. And checked in the hotel. It was kind of expensive, and, and so I had to check out the next night. And uh, I didn't know where I was going. I was just looking around. I didn't know anything. Driving and looking, driving and looking. But I came up on this accidentally on this club five spot and and monk was playing in there <laughs> what <laughs> okay and then uh, i saw that uh, mccoy was playing down the street mccoy tyner so i said okay uh, uh, uh i'm gonna and i heard about new york i knew uh, i thought i knew uh, yes i knew what to expect and how things can happen but i just for some reason i was so excited i i, I grabbed my horn and and locked the car the windows were up, and I, I went in to hear Monk a little bit, and then I went in to hear, hear McCoy a little bit, and I came back, and everything was gone. <laughs> the car was there, but the windows were down, and everything was gone. Wow. I, you know, <laughs> that at, the, at that time, too, that kind of stuff didn't happen in Texas because, I mean, people are more comfortable, and uh, they have things. They, they, and they respect other people's things. But I forgot about the junkies and stuff in New York. <laughs> For for that small minute, or two minutes, or whatever, <laughs> ten minutes, I came back and the, all my stuff was gone. Man, I, uh, I I still had the horn, but and I and I was in jeans and I never wore jeans. <laughs> I wear them all the time now, but I right. I didn't then. Then, uh, you know, I was the best dressed in school and into modeling and all that stuff. <laughs> but I I was so hurt and I. I went back into one of the uh, uh, those clubs, and I, I remember uh, Cedar was there, Cedar Walton, and I, I remember that he uh, was from Texas, Dallas, and I said, "Oh man, I mean, you know, I hadn't met him le- uh, formally before, but I said, you know, I'm Billy, and and I'm from Texas, and I, you know, I was just, I just parked my car out here, and I came in to hear some music for a second, and and all my stuff is gone." He said, "Well, you shouldn't have left it there." I said, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking I'm getting some sympathy or something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, forget him. I, I just, I, I left out of that place and then I uh, got a phone book and just started looking through the book. I didn't know who I was going to find. I, I, I also remembered that uh, after looking that uh, Diddy Muffet was here playing with Arnett Coleman. The drummer, mm-hmm. uh, Charles Muffet. Whew, I found him, and I called him <laughs> and told him my story. And he said, come on over. Had you known him no? previously? Oh, yeah, yeah. We played in Texas before. Okay. Yeah, in Fort Worth and uh, and in Dallas. You know, he, he was sometimes there. Okay. And uh, uh, Arnett Coleman was there sometimes, too, but I didn't get a chance to really meet him there. Okay. But uh, Muffet saved me. That's how I, he said, come on over, and, and I stayed with him. <laughs> it's amazing, wow. isn't it? Yeah. So will you talk about uh, you, as you mentioned, you played with Max Roach, you played with Art Blakey and many other greats on your path. I played with Elvin. Great and, yourself. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, all the top drummers. How did that How did that happen? How did you begin to do that? Was it kind of the typical like, set in at sessions or did you do it through the people that you knew? Or? Well, I, I did both. I mean, when I first got here, once I at least had a place to stay and uh, 
and Charles was uh, Moffat was helping, I uh, <clears throat> I would go out every night and and uh, and and try to sit in. Uh, I did that every night, and I and you know it was fascinating because it was New York. I'd come back at four o'clock in the morning every night almost. Uh, I was you know sometimes I get a chance to play the. Uh, long story. One of the long stories was when I met Elvin and tried to sit in with him. <laughs> well, you, well, you, you got to tell it. So. Yeah, I guess I have to. <laughs> I've told it many times, but I'll tell it again. Uh, so I went there. Uh, uh, slugs. That was a, the mm-hmm. joint. I started to say club. It's not like a club, but it was <laughs> the, the joint. And I played in Slugs a whole lot of times after that. But uh, uh, I, I said, uh, Mr. Jones, I'm uh, uh, Billy Harper and uh, from Texas, and I'd like to... Uh, maybe sit in with you. He, he, I didn't know his condition or anything. He was looking at me and said, No! <laughs> so what? <laughs> okay, New York. But you know, I was strong. I, I, nothing bothered me then, nothing. Because I knew I could play. Right. That, that, it's, that's the best thing you can do. Be real, feel real good about your playing. And so I said, Oh, um, yes, okay, uh, excuse me. And, uh, he was drunk, and, and he was, uh, you know, maybe kicking a habit or something. I don't know anything about that stuff. <laughs> right. I just knew that he was like, no, heavy no. I came back the next night, and I said, uh, Elvin, uh, I was just here. <laughs> I was just here. <laughs> I was just here last night. I'm wondering if I could sit in tonight. He said, no. But it didn't sound like the first one. Okay. I said, okay. I came back the next night and said, uh, 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 Mr. Jones, you think I can sit in tonight? He said, no, no just no, go sit down. Go sit down. Go sit down. <laughs> okay, I went and sit down. But but it was nothing like the first two times. And then I heard he had a rehearsal the next day. I was there before, the, before he got there. And then when he drove up in the taxi, I said, uh, uh, Mr. Jones, uh, I'll help you with your drums if you let me have, sit in with you. <laughs> he said, oh, don't do that to me. Don't do that. Don't do that to me. You know, you know Elvin was always in his throat. Like right. <laughs> <laughs> so I helped him with his drums. And, and you know, I love listening to, the, to the, the rehearsal. I didn't get a chance. I wasn't even thinking about playing. I didn't have a horn. But, uh, and I helped him with the drums down when, he, when we were finished. And I came back that night. <laughs> I was really uh, persistent, I guess. He probably thought I was crazy. <laughs> I said, uh, uh, Mr. Jones, maybe I can sit in with you tonight? He said, uh, on the third set, on the third set. Okay, just sit down, third set. Oh, this is very different. So I sat down, and uh, they played, and, and uh, you know, everybody uh, was digging the music, and then everybody went home, and I was still sitting down. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Okay, so anyway, um as I was saying, we I went back the next night uh and I just sit, I didn't say anything to him. I didn't say a word. I just I made up looked or something and then I just went over and sat down <laughs> in my spot. <laughs> okay, so uh the first set went by, second set went by. Third set he leaned over and looked at me and said, "Come on up." <laughs> So I came on up, you know. Uh, now this is my my chance, and and uh, the the players were maybe uh, I think Billy Billy Green on piano, not the young Billy Green that you've heard of, but uh, an older guy, 
guy, uh, Hank Mobley on tenor sax, and I was ready for that too. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Elvin jumped off the drums when I got up, and Philly Joe jumped on. <laughs> and Philly Joe set one of those up tempos, you know, bang, 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 bang. and you know, roaring, roaring, roaring. Okay, so uh, 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 Hank Mobley played his solo. There was another fellow on, on uh, tenor just sitting up there, but he was like a uh, the drug connection or something. And he, he, you know, he wasn't ready for the stuff. But anyway, uh, Hank Mobley played played a fantastic solo, and uh, it was time for me to play, and I started. I started. I started playing a few bars, and then Philly Joe hit the drums, and and everybody stopped, bam, and put his elbow on the on the set and just looked at me. <laughs> everybody else stopped with him. I, I just kept playing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I just closed my eyes and kept playing, and I played more and more and more, and I was into it then. And I was playing playing my stuff, and pretty soon he had to come in. And the people were screaming because I was playing, and then by myself I kept going. I didn't even know what to do. I just kept playing. And then he came in, boom, and they were screaming. You know, it was really, ah. Yeah, I, 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 it's sort of like riding a Bronco. I broke him. <laughs> you know, it was a, a great event, great event. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if. I remember some of the people who were there. I wish I could find them. But uh, when I got off and, and uh, Philly Joe was uh, leaning at the bar, he said, you know, you know, man, you, you play good, but you play so long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> so that, that was one of my first introductions to the New York scene and what will happen in New York. But I think that might have spread around and people heard Heard about right. it, yeah. And then pretty soon, uh, I accidentally met Gil Evans on the street on Broadway, and I said, uh, "Mr. Evans, you know, I'm Billy, Billy Harper, and uh, uh, you know, we talked, and I love your music, and I'd like to play. If you need somebody for rehearsal or something, you know, give me a call. We traded cards. That's what everybody did, and it never meant anything. You, you know, you change, exchange cards, okay. But uh, later on, it did, and he called me uh, to make a, 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 a rehearsal. Sure. Okay, but then when I made the rehearsal, then I was in the band, and and uh, we traveled to California and played there. And Elvin was in the band with Gil, <laughs> <laughs> and I played in his group too. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was great. <laughs>
Now you've had a, a chance, I, I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, to to be Elvin Jones now in this scenario. I mean, you, you now you're an established <laughs> player. Yeah. Have you uh, have you had experiences now with young players coming up to you and Mr. Harper? Can I sit in and, and what's in? that like to be in the other? <laughs> yeah. Well, I wouldn't expect. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't do that. <laughs> no, I, I never do that. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of young players come up, and I try to. Uh, um, Give them a space on on a particular tune or something like that. Do you feel an obligation to do that in some way? Some no, not really. No? Okay, it's just that I'm a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> you are a saint, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, I know I know how, what it means. I know what it means for them too. You know. So yeah, uh, I've had that happen. Sure. We're uh, conducting this interview at at the new school, and uh, it's something we talk about on this show a lot about. The role of the academy in jazz now, particularly given that the situation that you just described is all but gone. The the, the New York you just described is all but gone, although the New York that remains probably would have kept your car intact. Uh, yeah, and, and that kind of bandstand apprenticeship is very hard to come by these days. Where do you see this place or places like the new school kind of fitting in? Well, I, I think uh, it's – Oh, it's so easy for the musicians now to get a chance to play. It's mm-hmm. really easy because if they are playing with uh, other musicians at this school, at some time or another, they will find each other at a jam session. And and so they are, they're the ones who are numbering anybody else who's playing. So they're going to play together like they play in school. Sure. And, and if somebody else wants to sit in, it's okay because they know them. I didn't know anybody. <laughs> and I certainly didn't know their temperaments. Right. You know. So, uh, yeah, it's quite different. Does it lead, though, to a, a different kind of musician? I wonder. I don't know. I know that uh, throughout the years, I've talked to some of the other musicians, and they were actually frowning on the fact that I, w- <laughs> I went to the university. They think I learned in the university. I, I learned a lot of stuff, but that's not where I learned my main stuff. Mm. Uh, so they think that a lot of them would think that... Uh, you know, there's going to be something stiff and something uh, sterile about a new player who comes up the other way. Yeah. Yeah. And that might be true. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you, uh, uh, we, we mentioned uh, over the, or at least uh, we started to talk about it, but we didn't actually get very far into it, talking about uh, composition and it being uh, central to what you've always done. Can you maybe say a bit? Yeah, it's because that? the simple thing and, and the very uh, uh, the the key to all of that is that the fact that I sang at first, mm. so I knew how to sing. I knew how to to and when I got to the horn, I knew how to sing on the horn, but I didn't hear it like that. Gil Evans told me <laughs> he discovered this about me that I didn't discover. He said, "Oh, I love the way you sing on that horn." I never thought about it like that, but yeah, I sing. And and when I'm on the horn, I I go into some section that sings the same way. And it is what the song is going to be, what a new song can be. I might not write it down. I might. I have done it before. I've written it down, what I sang on the horn, and it became a new song. But I I don't always do that. Is that because the singing uh, kind of externalizes the melodies that are going on inside your brain? Is that what the singing helps? Uh, The singing is... uh, I think part of what creates the melodies because I'm I'm thinking of improvising, but then if I think of improvising in relation to something I might sing or want to sing on the on the horn, it becomes a a real melody. 
a, a nice melody. Many times I've just jotted down the first few few bars, so I'll remember that. And I come back to it later, maybe years later or months later. Does the medium of your own composition provide the best route for you to express yourself musically? I mean, you've obviously played a gazillion of other yeah, people's tunes, yeah. and with people like Blakey, you would have played many tunes from you know the kind of the classic songbook plus all the tunes that people in his band were writing. But now over the years, you've had a chance to really focus on playing your own music. Is that Does that allow you a different form of expression or a more concentrated or focused expression of who you are? Uh, I suppose it actually does allow a more more focused uh, 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 approach to to who who I am. But I like so many of the other tunes too that other other people have written. Uh, it, it fits in well too, and I get a chance to do that with the Cookers. I don't do that with my band. I focus sure. on yeah on the things that uh, come from my my heart and soul. And I know that they're going to be right because I'm not going to I'm not going to do it if it's not from there. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, finally, I'll just ask about you as a as a band leader. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your your band leading philosophy? How much instruction you give to the musicians? How? Uh, well, the 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 uh, the bottom line is that you. I think that you have to choose musicians musicians who feel similar to you, and and that's the way I do it. Uh, that's the way I did. I happen to find the exact musicians who can feel exactly what what I'm trying to talk about. And then I don't have to give much instruction at all, because when we play a particular tune, they feel it just the way I do, <laughs> and 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 that's what makes it work. Will you mention who's in your band? Well, Francesca Tanksley for one thing on piano, uh, Keon Harold is on trumpet, Clarence C on bass, and uh, at the moment Aaron Scott on drums. Aaron played with McCoy, uh, Clarence played with Blakey, uh, Keon was actually from uh, New School. Oh, okay, and. Uh, and I heard him, and I was checking him out when he was in my class. So I know that he knew the, the kind of thing I was talking about. And is that how you know? You know yeah. from hearing? Yeah. And feeling. Hearing and feeling. Mm. You know, you got to get a certain kind of feeling from, from that person. you got a lot of people who can play, and then it doesn't feel. It, it just seems intellectual, which is how they learned. And that can be uh, interesting, I guess, but that's not what I what I'd be talking about quite. It sounds to some degree like that answers the question you posed before about is there a different nature to people who just come out of the academy versus yeah. the way yeah. you came up. Right. Yeah, I came up knowing that uh, there's a real uh, difficult and uh, devoted, dedicated approach that you have to have toward playing. And that means that if you're going to have that, you have to have that toward feeling the music as well. It's not just playing it. If you only learn to play and play well, that's good. And that's all it is, right. <laughs> you know, which is good, which is good. You know, it's good to be good. But I'm talking about something much deeper, <laughs> you know. Is that something – well, I don't know. I guess you've answered this question too. I was going to say is that something that only comes with age and experience, but you said you heard it in, in the work of a student as well. Yeah, yeah. No, no, not age. It doesn't have to do with age. It has to do with uh, – what's inside and what you've discovered inside you. Not the music. <laughs> Something about your spirit. So how self-aware you are. Yeah.
I read somewhere, it might have been on your website, that you said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but that your your music had a, a larger purpose than just entertainment. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, my uh, experience from the beginning, when I, after crawling and walking and I was in church, um, I learned so much stuff that you just won't learn in school. And, and it's not music I'm talking about. So much stuff about this kind of spiritual thing becomes the reason that you are connected to the music. That was most invaluable. I was, in, I was there as a little kid, surrounded by these people who had all kind of rhythm. I mean, they, people were playing on tambourines and, and doing some rhythm with their feet and stuff that I, it's just soaked in. By the time I, I wanted to play, I had all kind of rhythm. <laughs> you know, I, could, I, I loved playing the drums. I, so when I came to play with all the drummers, it was easy. That's why it was so easy. You know, I had all that rhythm, and I had gotten it from the black church. You know, all kinds of rhythm, just that I wouldn't even think about. They didn't think about it. They just, that's what came out, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So when you, if you put that feeling together, and, and I felt that, that same kind of thing when I listened to, to uh, at that the era of uh, 50s and 60s, you had the impressions and, and some of the uh, popular groups. Uh, uh, a lot of the uh, soul singers were had that kind of feeling too. Yeah, I mean, people like Sam Cook, he'd come right out of the like the soulsters and that whole gospel yeah, movement. Yeah. yeah, but they had that special feeling thing, that special rhythm, and and and, and it just that's it, naturally the way they that's naturally the way they did their song with that kind of feeling. And uh, Stevie Wonder knew something about that. Knows a whole lot about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Ray Charles. You know, yeah, they were connected to the church, just like I was. And so was Coltrane, by the way. I didn't even know that in his history. Turned out that his uncle was a minister, and he knew those songs that I knew. And so we had a similar feeling in that way. That's that's that, that's how I define my uh, connection to Train uh, through the spirit and heart. You know. Uh, it was expressed, uh, some of those things that, that you won't learn in school is, is what I get to in, in my writing of my music. And some people have said that, actually. They've, they didn't know exactly what it's from. There's something, some magic or something you have in, that, uh, in the way you write this stuff or the music or something. So, okay, but I hope that didn't get in the way, way of my playing. I, I play, <laughs> you know. Um, I feel that when I'm playing, too. And so does that means it sounds like you ascribe uh, a higher level of value than just I hope you enjoy this show to what you're delivering to the oh, audience. Oh, definitely, definitely. No, 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 no. I mean, uh, well, let's go over it again. When I'm writing a song, if I can think of 50 ideas, they're just, they are good. That's just good, though. They, if they don't feel, I don't use it. <laughs> I write until I finally get something that feels a certain way. And I play it over and over and over until I can almost cry myself. Then it's right. right. <laughs> Somebody's going to feel this. <laughs> you know? And that's the, way, that's the way the writing for me goes. Yeah. And I'll wait until it comes. Just wait until that special thing comes. Because I have all kinds of... I mean, I was in school. I can write a lot of songs. You know, if I wanted to say, okay, let's break Beethoven's record for writing stuff, I could write all kinds of stuff. But that doesn't, that's not it. Right. <laughs> yeah, <you know. laughs> My guest is composer and saxophonist uh, Billy Harper. He's, uh, I mean, one of one of the guys that everybody should know. And uh, 
Uh, we did this particular interview kind of coming out of this new Cooker's uh, record, Cast the First Stone. But uh, definitely check out all of Billy's work. It's been, uh, man, such a great pleasure for me to, to hear some of your stories. And I thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. the band the cookers don't forget send your email to contest at the jazzsession.com with cookers in the subject line to have a chance to win a copy of the new cd signed by all the members of the band i'm jason crane this is the jazz session presented by allaboutjazz.com the web's leading source for jazz news reviews mp3 downloads and more Every episode of the show is available for free anytime you want it at thejazzsession.com. And I need you to become a member to support the show and help keep it going for years into the future. And you can find out about that at thejazzsession.com, too. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting the show. And now get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.